There is a, a sense that I've picked up on in my years of ministry is that when it comes to questions about God and life and the connection of God and life, that a lot of people believe that pastors have the answers to all those questions. Now, it's true we do. We just don't like to let that out often. Actually, it's not so true. But I find that um, there are some great discussions that arise as the great questions of life and God and the connection of those two things becomes a part of our interactions. And sometimes when I'm thinking about a passage of Scripture and I'm trying to figure out uh, what the point of this is, why is it here? Because I'm convinced that one of the things that, that I've missed for a long time is that there are things in Scripture, God, God's intention is clear about giving us the word that we need. And this certainly isn't all the things that God could have said to us. I mean, John says, if we wrote down everything Jesus did, we wouldn't have enough paper. We wouldn't have enough, it'd fill up the world. And that's certainly not, we have a pretty slim, uh, slim uh, book that we have as the Bible to, that God has given to us. And so one of the questions I'm asking myself is, why is that here and, as opposed to other things being here? And one of the ways in which I, I think about a passage of Scripture and trying to, to discern the intent of it is to imagine myself sitting in a living room or a java and having a conversation with someone and they ask a question that leads me to say, well, let me turn to this passage of Scripture to answer that question. And as I was thinking about the book of Malachi, I'm, the question in my mind was, what kind of question might someone ask me that would lead me to say, I think the answer to that question, or at least a part of it, is found in Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 17. And as I pondered that, I think one of the questions that this passage begs is this. Does God care about injustice? Does God care about all the injustice of the world? And does God care about doing justice? Does it matter to him? When you look at the book of Malachi, it's really a series of statements and questions and then answers. It's a dialogue between God and Israel. The very first verse begins, God says, I've always loved you. And Israel says, really? We're not seeing it. How have you always loved us? We're not in real good shape here. Things are falling apart. It doesn't feel like you love us. And God says, are you kidding me? I chose you. Look at all the miraculous things I've done for you. In verse 6 of chapter 1, God says, Despite all the things you say about me, you have contempt for my name. And Israel's surprise says, What? How do we have contempt for your name? We bring you all the sacrifices you say we should bring you. We're doing all the rituals you want us to do. And God says, Well, yeah, you're bringing sacrifices, but have you seen these mangy animals you're bringing to me? They're blind, they're maimed, they're crippled, they're, they're diseased. I mean, these are animals you want to get, you, you just want to get rid of them. Try offering those animals to your governor and see what he does. 
And the reason you do that is because you don't take me seriously. You have contempt for me. Then you move to chapter 2, verse 10. And, and God says, you know what? Even if you brought the right sacrifices, I wouldn't accept them. And they say, why won't God accept our sacrifices? And he says, because of the way you treat the marital covenant. You marry outside of Israel. You marry people who worship other gods. And the reason you do that is because deep in your spirits, you believe all the gods are the same. What difference does it make? That God, this God, Baal, Asherah, Marduk, Yahweh, they're all the same. And when you do marry people of the faith, you treat them contemptuously. You're unfaithful to each other. Men, you divorce your wives at the drop of a hat and you leave them helpless. You don't care. And if you don't care, then I'm not accepting your sacrifices. And then you get to chapter 3, verse 6. And, and God says, you know, I, you all have run away from me. But if you return to me, I'll return to you. And the Israelites say, what? How can we return to you? We've never left you. We've always been for you. Everything we've ever done in our history has been about you. I mean, you can almost see God laughing out loud at that moment. How have we, how have we gone away from you? And he says, by cheating me. They said, well, how have we cheated you? By not bringing the tithes into the storehouse. You've been holding back. You're not giving me everything that, that you're supposed to give me. And their response is, well, you know, if we felt like we were getting any return on our investment, maybe we'd give a little bit more. But when we look around, all the rich people don't worship Yahweh. All the people that seem to have everything we want in life, they worship other gods. And we don't get what we want. And the rest of the book is then a condemnation on Israel about their misunderstanding of who God is. And in the midst of those questions, there's one more, the one we read today. And God says, you have wearied me with your words. Have you ever had a conversation with someone that wearies you with their words? Maybe you come to church on Sunday thinking, man, he's wearying me with his words again. You know, it just it wears you out. Because they're not really talking, they're talking, but it doesn't seem to be about anything. And God says to Israel, you are wearing me out with your words. You're wearing me down. And they say, how are we wearing you with our words? He said, because your words don't mean anything. Because you say you follow me, and you make all these great declarations about me. And then you go out, and you treat people like dirt. You go out, and you treat, you ignore and you abuse and you take advantage of all the, the vulnerable people among you. You don't care about widows or orphans. You don't care about aliens and strangers among you. You don't care about people who can't take care of themselves. At the very least, you're apathetic about them. Oftentimes, you're the cause of their struggle. And you're wearing me out with your, these meaningless, empty words. And you're saying to people, God doesn't care about justice. If he did, maybe he'd do something about how we're living, but he hasn't. 
And it, it makes God angry because God has always cared about justice. And God has always addressed injustice. In fact, from the very beginning of Israel, of setting, calling out Israel as a nation, God says, there's all the laws. Here's how you're to live. And we read through Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and our head starts spinning at all the things that we're reading. And a lot of the things we read don't make any sense to us. Things about goat's milk and all this stuff. And we read it and we think, What? What does it have to do with us? And there are a lot of things that we say, well, they've got to contextualize that. But there are some of those laws, some of those teachings that you don't need any context to understand. And one of those teachings is you care for the most vulnerable people among you. You care about widows and orphans and, and immigrants and refugees and aliens and strangers and all the people that are on the margins of society Those are the people you care about. You care about the people that everybody else ignores and everyone else takes advantage of. Don't do that. Care about them. And you care about them because I care about them. Because they're important to me. And he says in verse 5 of Malachi chapter 3, the reason you don't care about them is because you don't fear me. I don't think he necessarily means you're scared of me, though that could be a part of it. But I think it's also a sense of you don't take me seriously. I'm not really that important to you. And because I'm not important to you, what I think and what I want and my desires and my heart aren't important to you. And so God says, I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send two messengers. And the first messenger is going to prepare the way for the second messenger. And as we find out later on in their history, that's John the Baptist. And then he talks about the messenger of the covenant. And that's Jesus. And he's going to come. And when he comes, there's going to be pain. And you get to the end of this, and God says, I'm going to hold people accountable who are the instigators who are the the sources of injustice. And he gives us this list of people. But he also says that I, the reason there's going to be pain is because the messenger of the covenant who comes is coming for one purpose and that is to purify you, to refine you, to make you holy. And that's a painful process. If you want to, I I don't know that that metal can feel anything. I don't think it can. But if it could, it would be screaming at the high heat that it takes to, to separate the pure gold and silver from the dross. And I don't think clothing can feel anything, but if it could, when we poured soap on it and we scrubbed out stains, it would hurt and it would scream. And when God wants to work in our lives purifying us, refining us, it's a painful process to wrench from us the things that we want to hang on to that are harming us and destroying us and leading us away from him and all of his blessings. I mean, all of the things that God is saying to Israel in this whole prophecy is, is to say to them, look, you're missing out on everything I created you to experience and you won't let go of them. And my messenger is coming to help you let go of those things. 
to change your heart, to change your mind, to change your way of thinking, the way you see the world, the way you see me. I want to make you holy. And to be holy is to have a pure heart, to have one desire, one passion, and that's for God. Tim Keller talks about the transformation in us and how we live our lives really comes down to the order, the priority of our loves. What we love the most, what we love more than other things, what we love less than other things, and what we love least. And if we took a few moments this morning and everyone had a piece of paper and you wrote down what I love the most, what I love more, what I love less, what I love the least, and we wrote down and put things beside that, I think that would be an interesting list, but I think it would be a much more interesting list if we put a line down the middle of the paper and on the other side of the line wrote, but this is how I really live and what I really love the most based on my actions. It might not be the same list. And it's that second list that God wants to get at. Not just what we say we believe, but what's, what's the passion of our hearts and how does that translate in how we live? And Malachi is saying a pure, pure-hearted people care about injustice. Pure-hearted people work for justice because that's the heart of God. That's who God is. And it doesn't mean that if you, if you work for justice that you're right with God. But it does mean that if you're right with God, you care about justice and you work for justice. And if we say we care about God and we're passionate about God, but we can, we can ignore people who are needy. And we live our lives with blinders on about all the people and all the injustice of the world. Then something is wrong with our relationship with God. Something's not right in our heart. And yes, God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to, to do something about the people who keep hanging on to that and perpetrate injustice and pervert justice. But what scares me the most about this prophecy is that we tend to have a sense of when we talk about injustice, we start pointing our fingers at other people. That's the terrorists. That's the, those are the people who live in immorality. Those are the people who who don't care a thing about God. And they certainly are a part of that, and they certainly have a tendency to do these things. But this is a prophetic word, not for Babylon. It's not for Assyria. It's not for Moab. It's not for Philistia. It's for Israel. It's for God's people. And actually, he gets even more specific in verse verse 1 and verse 3, and he says, this messenger of the covenant is coming to the temple, to the center of our worship. As we can see from this whole prophecy, the worship of Israel is skewed and messed up and and completely misunderstood. And the messenger of the covenant is coming to, to do something about that. To set our hearts right. This is about us. And it makes me wonder if it isn't a fair statement to say that maybe people question God's commitment to justice. Because they look at us and question our commitment to justice. I mean, God's radical plan through the centuries from the very beginning has been that his people represent him to the world. 
He said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bless you and I'm going to raise you into a great nation so that all the world will be blessed through you. And everyone is going to to look at you and say, that's the God that I want. And he does the same thing with Israel. He pulls them out of Egypt and he sets them up as the nation. And he says, you're my special people, not so that you're special and everybody else is not, but so that people will get a glimpse of what it looks like for a nation of people to be in relationship with Yahweh. And out of that, we'll look at that and say, that's the kind of relationship we want too. If that's what your God looks like, we want that God. And he does the same thing with the church. He sets the church apart and says, you be my witnesses. People are going to look at you and say, that's what God is like. Good or not so good. There's a part of me that wants to to say to everyone who's not a believer, everyone, whether it's somebody who might be here or everywhere else in the world, and say, please forgive us. We have fallen short so often. We have misrepresented God. We have twisted God's nature and character by how we've lived. And yes, we're going to be imperfect. We're we're human beings. We're never going to get it right. But there is a difference between not getting it right and not caring if we get it right. Jesus comes to help us want to get it right, to change our hearts so that that's a passion we have to be like Jesus. Just think what the world would be like, how different our nation would be, how different the world would be if the, in the 17th century, in the 18th century, the American church said, we will not stand for slavery. I don't care what it costs us. We will not stand for slavery. And the 20th century church stood up and said, we will not stand for racism. It is not going to happen if we have anything to do with it. And the 21st century church, the same thing. How different our country and our world would look if the church had taken that kind of stand. Instead of arguing about it or equivocating about it or even worse, perpetrating it. It's a huge responsibility and it's frightening to me to think that we represent God to the world in this way. But it's God's plan and it's the risk that he takes. And Jesus comes to make us the church that is pure and refined so that we reflect the nature and the character of God about all things, including justice. And God says to to Israel, if you let me purify you, now I'll start accepting your sacrifices. If you let me change your heart, now that's the sacrifice I want. That's the sacrifice I'll accept. And this is going to be the, the... you're going, to get, you're going to find my blessing on you like you've not experienced before. And the world will be changed because now you reflect me and they're going to see me in you and they're going to think differently about me and come to follow me. And they're going to flock to me because they see me in you. And you know, this feels like a warning of wrath and judgment. And I guess in some ways it is. 
But when I read through the scriptures, and particularly in the Old Testament, because we tend to see a little bit more of that, I've come to realize that it's never really judgment in the sense that we think of it. It's always a warning of grace. You know, when God comes and gives a message like this that's stern, it's a warning of grace. The intent is not for God. Not, God is not saying, I can't wait to get you people. God is saying, I want to warn you every possible way I can to turn around, change your mindset, let me work in you because the pathway you're going now is nothing but destruction. And I don't want you to go to destruction. And the pathway you're on now is leading a whole lot of other people to destruction and I don't want that to happen either. I want you to wake up. I want you to see it. I want you to realize how serious this is and let me change you. God's warnings are always warnings of grace. There's always one more opportunity, one more chance to see it in a new light, to be awakened from our sleep and to find the grace of God like he desires to give. If you're like us, we have these uh, holiday traditions of different television shows and movies that we like to watch together. If you have children in your home or grandchildren, you know, maybe you gravitate toward things like uh, you know, Rudolph or, or How the Grinch Stole Christmas, or maybe you watch those if you don't have any children or grandchildren in your house. I kind of like those shows. And maybe you've got a favorite Some A lot of people I know like A Christmas Story. In our home, it's A Christmas Carol. But it's not just any version of Christmas Carol. It's the 1951 version, black and white, starring Alistair Sim. That is the version we watch. And every year, a few days before Christmas, we all get together and, uh, and we, we turn out the lights except for the Christmas tree and we all have hot chocolate or hot tea or something and we watch this black and white movie from 1951 of A Christmas Carol. That tradition started because we did that when I was a child. And, um, of course, you know, back... Back in the olden times, when uh, you only had four stations on the television to watch, ABC, CBS, NBC, and PBS. And, of course, PBS in those days was almost exclusively educational programming. So as a child, we weren't all that interested in watching PBS. So, and, and shows were on once, you know. And you couldn't record them. We had no device for that. So you either watched them when they were on or you missed them. And invariably, this movie was on after the late news so in Indiana, it was 10.30. And uh, usually it was my mom, my older sister, and me. And we would stay up and watch this movie. And typically, the two of them would fall asleep. But I never did, because I loved this movie. It's probably why I wanted my children to love this movie. And I was thinking about that movie this week. And particularly, one of the final scenes, where Scrooge is, is with the ghost of Christmas yet to come. And in this film version of it, the ghost is a haunting, silent figure. Faceless, a hooded robe, points at things, never speaks, never responds, just points. And he takes Scrooge through all of those scenes that Dickens creates. And they come to the graveyard. And as they're walking through the graveyard, nearing that stone that's 
Scrooge doesn't want to see. He says to the, to the spirit, Spirit, before I look at that stone, answer me one question. Are these shadows of things that will be? Or shadows of things that might be? And the spirit just points at the stone and Scrooge sees his name engraved there and he falls on it weeping and wailing. And then he gets up on his knees and he puts his hand on the spirit's robe and he says, spirit, I'm not the man I was. I'm not the man I was. Surely you haven't gone through all of this if I'm beyond hope. I really think that's what God is saying to Israel and to us. You're not beyond hope. Maybe you failed in representing God. Maybe as the church, we haven't been to people what we should be. And the warning frightens us a little bit. I think it's probably intended to frighten us a little bit. But it's always hope and grace to let God change our hearts. Not because we've seen some scenes that might happen in our lives like Scrooge, but because Jesus has come. And he comes to purify us and to refine us and to make us holy and new. And that means to make us care about justice. And to represent the nature and the character of God. This is not a passage that answers those age-old questions. Why do bad things happen to good people? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? There are other passages that address those. But this passage does call us to open our hearts so that Jesus can change us and work in us. Make us holy and new people who care about others the way God does. And to watch God use us in ways we could have never dreamed possible. Holy Father, in this moment of silence, speak into our hearts. Speak into our minds. Thank you for your grace to us. Give us the courage and the wisdom and the faith to let you reprioritize our hearts, our loves, so that we might actually look like you and act like you to a world that needs to know you. Amen.